Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Hear now God's word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place at which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading and our sermon text this morning is from the Gospel of John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. We'll be continuing to make our way through the first two chapters of John. I am preaching one more time through the uh, month of May, so we will actually only be making it through chapter 1, but Lord willing, that means that I We'll be able to come back, hopefully, and pre- continue to preach into chapter 2. But we will be continuing here in chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Hear now God's word. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that, I might be, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the spirits descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your words through the Apostle John this morning, God, we ask that we, through them we would hear the voice of our Savior. Lord, would you work in and among us through this time, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we know that we need your help in this time for your word to be effective, and so we ask for your help even now as your word is read and preached. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It's been a few weeks since I've preached uh, through the Gospel of John, but if you will recall, we've just completed the prologue, and as we considered John's opening statements in the prologue, one of the questions that I wanted us to focus on several weeks ago was the question of who is Jesus? That seems to be the central, or one of the central questions that John is implicitly asking. Who is Jesus? And John the Apostle, John the author of this text, then goes on to tell us who Jesus is. He gives us these statements about who he is. You'll recall some of them from the very first verses. You you remember that he calls him the Word, right? That Jesus is the Word of God, that he is with God, that he was God. And later on, after declaring him to be the Word, he says that he was the light who came into the world. And then even later, that this Word who was with God from eternity, that this Word took on flesh, that he came to dwell among us. So John is declaring certain things. Again, he's saying this is who Jesus is. And this is really not just the question of the prologue, who is Jesus? This is one of the central questions of the gospel as a whole. And as John asks this question implicitly, as he gives his own primary statements about who Jesus is, he then now moves on in our text this morning from his own declaration about who Jesus is. And now he begins to gather a series of testimonies from other people declaring who Jesus is. And so this morning, we have the testimony of another John. It's a little bit confusing. This morning, we read about John, but this isn't the author of the text. This is John the Baptist, you may have surmised. This is the Baptist, John the Baptist of the other Gospels, this one who is proclaiming, this one who is, who is preparing the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist himself has certain things to say about Jesus. He has certain things to declare, to testify 
about Jesus. And that is what we want to see this morning, that as John the author, John the apostle, tells us the gospel, as he begins the narrative of the gospel, he shows us the testimony of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist this morning will, in several ways, testify. He will bear witness, as if in a court of law, to who Jesus is. He will tell us certain truths that we must believe about Jesus. And as we hear John's testimony this morning, what he declares about Jesus, we want to see three things in particular that he testifies about Jesus. The first is that he declares Jesus is the superior one, that Jesus is superior to him and to his ministry. Secondly, that Jesus is the sufficient sacrifice. And finally, that Jesus is the Son of God. So we begin this morning with John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus is superior. And in order to testify to this, the first thing that John does is he testifies about himself. Well, really, he begins by testifying about who he isn't, who he is not, as these religious leaders come to him, these uh, priests and these Levites. They come to John. They've heard you know, these uh, reports of all these people going out from Jerusalem, going out from all the land of Judea, and they're going out east of the Jordan River to be baptized. John is, has this ministry of pre- preparation, this ministry of baptism, and so these religious leaders want to go out. They want to kind of vet his ministry. They want to figure out who is this guy who's drawing all these people to him. And as they come, before they can even say a word, Right? Or, or as they ask their first question, rather, as they simply say, who are you? What are you doing out here? Uh, John the Baptist, he circumvents their questions and he says flat out from the very beginning. They say, who are you? He says, well, it goes even further, says he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. I am not the Christ. The assumption being that they were expecting, they were looking for, they were wondering, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? He cuts them off. He says, no, I'm not the Christ, in case you were going to ask me that. So they go on, they say, well, then are you Elijah? John says, no, I am not Elijah. Finally, they ask him, are you then the prophet? John answers each time a little bit shorter. This time he simply says, no. He cuts them off from any further questions. And these three uh, people that they're listing, these three people that they have in their heads, these aren't random. They might be random or they might seem not to make sense to us, but these three Questions or these three people from their questions point to what they were expecting at this time. That these three people, the Christ, the Messiah, the the Elijah figure that they ask about, and the prophet, they were all pointing to this end time expectation that many of the people of Israel have. That they first ask or are wondering, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah? This anointed one, right? This Davidic and priestly figure who would come at the end of time to make all things right. He says, no. So they say, okay, then are you Elijah? This points to uh, the prophecy at the very end of the Old Testament from Malachi chapter 4, this promise that when the Messiah comes, when the Lord comes, when the end of history comes, that the uh, Elijah figure will come, that he will make a way, he will prepare the way for the Lord. John says, no, I'm not Elijah. So they say, okay, are you then the prophet? Again, this end times figure, which points all the way back to Deuteronomy as Uh, Moses is finishing his ministry as he's about to die. He tells the people that one day in the future, at the end of all things, there will be a prophet like me, and you will listen to him. He will be the ultimate prophet. He'll be the final prophet, and you will listen to what he says. So John says, no, I am not any of these things. I'm not the one you were potentially hoping for or expecting. And so they go on. They say, okay, then just tell us plainly, who, who are you? What are you doing out here? 
And in answer to this question, John, perhaps a little cryptically, he responds with the words of the prophet Isaiah. In verse 23, he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight, uh, excuse me, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. So John says that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he is this voice, that you know, I'm not the, the one, I'm not the, the Messiah, I'm not the prophet, but I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So John here is affirming as he talks about first who he isn't, but then he says, this is who I am, I'm this voice. He says, you know, I'm not the one, you guys might have been expecting me to be the one, but certainly I am the one who points to the one. I am the voice pointing to that one you are hoping for. I'm not the prophet, I'm not the Messiah, but I am declaring that he is about to come onto the scene. And as he tells about who he is, as he says, I am this voice in the wilderness, you know, make straight the way of the Lord, he's also telling us who is coming. He's telling us, in a sense, who we ought to expect to come onto the scene. And in particular, he says, make straight the way of the Lord. John's declaring that not only is the Christ coming, not only is the prophet coming, not only is it the end of the age, but the Lord himself is coming on onto the scene. So they ask him then, okay, if you're not, and they kind of skip right over his declaration that the Lord is coming, and they ask him then, you know, what, what are you doing out here baptizing? What rights do you have to baptize? What is this, what's the point of you baptizing all these people out here in the Jordan River? And as John then goes on to explain his ministry of baptism, note his humility. John says, sure, you know, I'm, I'm baptizing. I am doing this uh, ministry of baptism out here. But he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So as John is telling about who he is, he's the voice, he's pointing to the coming of the Lord. He also shows his humility. He says, whoever it is that's coming, the, you know, the Lord, the, the, the Christ, the prophet, this one who you are waiting for, that I am not worthy to untie the, the sandals that are on his feet. And this declaration, it's not just a you know, form of, pi- of false piety, of false humility on John's part. John is declaring how above him, how superior this coming one is to him. At this, at this time when you came into a household, typically you, know, you would be coming on dirty roads and you would walk in. And typically there would be, if you were wealthy enough, that household would have a slave waiting there at the door for you, waiting to take off your sandals and then to wash your feet, to you know, uh, prepare you to come inside to fellowship with one another. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be a slave at the door of this one who is coming. Even at this time, it was not only repugnant for uh, you know, a commoner to do this task, but even for Jewish people, this was a task relegated to Gentiles, that a Jew would never take off the sandal of another person to wash it. John's saying, this person is so far above me, I'm not even worthy to be a servant, a slave in his presence. So John is, in this way, preparing them for the fact that someone big, someone important, the Lord himself, is coming. He's saying, I'm baptizing, right? This ministry baptizing, baptism I'm doing is because he is coming. The one is coming. And you can imagine, as he's declaring these things, that yes, your expectations, they were a little off. I'm not the one. But yes, you are right to be hopeful that he is coming. You can imagine the excitement for the people of Israel, for the people of Israel, they have been in 400 years about of silence, of not hearing anything from God, of waiting for God, of waiting for this day to come, this promise that the Lord would come, would save them, would redeem them. 
And in the meantime, as they've been waiting, as they've been not hearing anything from God, they've been under first Greek oppression, Greek rule, and then now Roman oppression. They've been under the thumb of these powerful empires, and they're waiting, they're longing for the Lord to come. They're waiting for the Lord to bring judgment, to you know, bring about this Old Testament day of the Lord, this day of judgment, this day of redemption for His people. So they're hoping now, as John is giving them this glimmer of hope, as John is pointing them to the one who is coming, they are hopeful, they're excited about the opportunity, about the potential for their redemption, for their salvation. And yet, with this good news, this proclamation of who is coming, we see it's not all, all good news, but there is first bad news that John gives before the good news, or with the good news. That these people are hoping for redemption, and as they are hoping for redemption, as they've been waiting, as they've been longing, we could ask and, and say with them, aren't we all hoping for redemption? Aren't we all waiting for salvation, for redemption? Every time we turn on the news and we see horrific and tragic stories around us, we're waiting for redemption. We're waiting for wrongs to be, to be made right. As we look at our own lives, as we see our own struggles, as we see the difficulties just in the day-to-day experience of ourselves and those around us, the pain, the grieving that is in this world, we are waiting for redemption. We're waiting for God to come to make all things right. We're hoping for redemption for ourselves and we're hoping for judgment for our enemies that God would strike down the evil things of this world. So John the Baptist comes onto the scene and he's declaring, yes, the time is at hand that judgment and redemption that the day of the Lord is coming. And yet John tells us, don't look outside of yourself. Don't look around you and see out there the need for redemption. The first thing John says is, look inside of yourself. And I don't mean that in the way that we typically hear that phrase in our day, right? To look inside of yourself means to look inside of yourself for that redemption, to look inside of yourself for some source of, of hope, of salvation. John says to look at yourself as that which needs redemption first and foremost. That as the day of the Lord is coming, as the Messiah is approaching, John says the problem isn't primarily out there in the world that needs to be fixed. It's not those things around you that need to be made right. John says that it's you It's all of us that need to be made right to prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord. And this goes back to what John was called to do as this last figure, this last prophet of the Old Testament. We see the very last words of the book of Malachi, the very end of the Old Testament, says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus himself in the other Gospels declares that John isn't literally Elijah, but he is the one who comes as this Elijah figure. goes on to say, And he, that Elijah one, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And those words at the end of Malachi, there's a promise there. You know, uh, the, the Lord says that he is coming, that he will make all things right, that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, but that there's a warning there as well that that needs to happen so that this day of the Lord will be a day of redemption and not a day of judgment. And this is, in fact, exactly what John's ministry of baptism is pointing to as he's calling people out into the wilderness, calling them east of the land of Israel. They go into the land and then they go through the waters of the Jordan to be baptized. This is a symbol of that need for repentance, that need to prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord. 
Baptism was, you know, was common, not only in Jewish uh, you know, rituals, but in many pagan rituals as well. But this, you know, obviously this idea of washing, right? That you come to the waters to wash, to bathe yourself, to cleanse yourself from impurity. And yet at this time, typically in the Jewish context, those who would have been baptized would have been proselytes, meaning those who were, Jew, uh, were Gentiles, those who weren't of the Jewish uh, you know, heritage, Jewish lineage who came into the faith, that they had to be uh, bathed, they had to be washed to come in to be part of the people of God, right? That baptism at this point was mainly for those you know, dirty outsiders, those Gentiles. And yet John is here saying, no, every single one of you, Jew and Gentile, needs to wash, needs to bathe, needs to repent of your sins. All people must prepare themselves for the day of the Lord. And this picture of them cleansing and then being brought back into the land of God, the land of Israel. So congregation, as John you know, has this ministry of baptism as he's declaring who he is and as he declares who's coming, he's affirming to all of us what we know, at least to some degree, that we all truly do need saving, that we not only need redemption from the stuff out there, but we ourselves need redemption. We need saving, not primarily from the scary things out there, not from our political opponents, not, not from our enemies, but primarily from ourselves, that we need to be rescued from our sins, that we need, need to be cleansed from our sins. So John here is reminding us, urging even us, as he's declaring these words of our need, of every human being's need for cleansing. And that's because, as he's already said, the superior one is coming. The Lord himself, the Messiah, the prophet is coming. So John declares, look to this superior one, but get yourselves ready. Prepare yourselves for his coming. So that scene ends, that, that day ends, John, the author moves on to the next day after declaring this first testimony of John the Baptist. And the second day we see, uh, starting in verse 29, there's another testimony that John gives. A second thing that he declares about Jesus after declaring that he's the superior one, he's the prophet, he's the Christ, he's the Lord. On the second day we see our second point this morning, that Jesus is also, according to John the Baptist, he is the sufficient sacrifice. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we probably, most of us, have heard that phrase many times. We have songs about it. This is a phrase that's repeated in the book of, or an idea that's repeated in the book of Revelation. We know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, I want to stop for a moment and think about, at least if you were there at that time, if you were there at the River Jordan and you heard John Declaring this, think about how strange that would have been to hear John point to Jesus who's at his side and say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? We're, we're, or they would have been expecting, they're, they're looking for this person. John says, He's among you, right? You don't know who he is, but he's here among you. They would have been wondering, Who is this person, right? Can we see him? Is he with us right now? And then John says, Here he is. This is the one I was talking about. And yet, instead of saying, right, this is the Messiah, this is the prophet, he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What were they expecting him to say? Well, John had already quoted Isaiah 40, right, make straight the path in the wilderness for the Lord, prepare a way for him. And then the next thing that that passage goes on to say is, behold your God, behold your God. But instead, John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We want to ask then, where does John get this language, this 
you know, somewhat seemingly surprising kind of random phrase that they weren't expecting. Where does he get this language, right? Well, he's not simply making it up. He didn't just make up this expression on his own, but rather we see in Scripture that this is a thread that carries through Scripture, carries through the Old Testament, this idea of this Lamb of God that John the Baptist is drawing from. And he's concluding that this is about Jesus. This thread begins even back in Genesis 22, which we read this morning. As uh, Abraham and Isaac, they're making their way up this mountain. They're making their way up so that Abraham will sacrifice his son as God has commanded him. On the way up, Isaac asks this question, you know, maybe a little bit slow, but he says, uh, you know, Father, where is the lamb? Right? We have the wood, we have the fire. Where is the lamb? And Abraham re- replies, it seems in faith, he says, God will provide a lamb. And then the angel stops Abraham at the last minute from killing his own son, and then we see not a lamb, but a ram, a, a provision, a sacrifice given that he then sacrifices to the Lord. This theme then carries on even into the Exodus, the, you know, the foundational event of the nation of Israel as they make their way out, or just before they make their way out of Egypt, there's this Passover event. That this final plague, as God has been plaguing the land of Egypt over and over, this final plague that finally seals the deal for Egypt and allows God's people to leave the land is this Passover event where God says, take a lamb, every household, take a lamb, slaughter it, cover your doorpost with its blood, and this you know, angel of death will pass over you. It will not strike your firstborn. So John might have that in his mind as well. And then, of course, perhaps most clearly as this theme of the Lamb of God makes its way through Scripture, perhaps most clearly it's seen in Isaiah 53. Which you're probably familiar with this picture of the suffering servant, this one who would come as a lamb, who would come to sacrifice himself for the people. If you read in verses four, or excuse me, verses five and six of Isaiah fifty-three, Isaiah says, "All we like sheep have gone astray; we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opens not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth." This time not a literal lamb, but of course showing that this suffering servant, that this one who would come, that he himself would act as this lamb, act as this substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of the people. And of course it's not only in the Old Testament that the people would have recognized this language that John is using, but in their everyday life, in the sacrificial system of Israel, they would have known what John was referring to here. That daily as they would go, or you know, at the different festivals throughout the year, they would go and they would see sacrifices being performed at the temple. They would know from the earliest days, from the earliest ages, that blood is necessary for the forgiveness of sins, that a lamb is needed to take away sins. So with all of this in mind, all, the, all this you know, baggage that the people would have had in their heads, John then declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to reflect just for a moment on that phrase. Yes, it's a strange phrase, but of course they, would have, they knew what he would have been pointing to. But just hear that phrase again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The first thing that we see is, John says, that it is the Lamb of God. It's not just any lamb, but it is God's Lamb. In the sacrificial system, the people had to provide their own lamb, and it had to be, had to be a blemishless, a perfect sacrifice. They had to make sure there was no spot on it. They had to offer it up on their own dime. 
And yet John says, this isn't your lamb. This is something, not something you're providing, but he says, this is the lamb that God provides. Again, pointing back even to Genesis 22, that God is going to provide a sacrifice. And that this lamb of God, he says, takes away sin. That it removes sin. As they would have seen daily or you know, uh, habitually, as they would have seen animals being sacrificed, they would have known that there was not an end to this, that this was, this was a regular part of their lives. They had to constantly offer sacrifices in order to cover their sins, in order to you know, approach God, in order to be in His presence. And yet, John says that this is the Lamb who once and for all takes away sin. This is the last sacrifice. This is the ultimate sacrifice. And even in this phrase, we see the extent of the sacrifice. It's the Lamb of God. It's the one who takes away sin. But he says that he takes away the sin of the world. The world which is a, as you might know, is a word that John, the author, uses often. It is a kind of a summary statement for him or a summary idea for him. But John the Baptist here is saying that this sacrifice that God himself will provide not only will take away the sins of the Jewish people, will not only cleanse them and the temple and the land, but it will take away the sins of the entire world, that it will be sufficient for every single person for whom it is applied. So as we hear John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God, congregation, hear this. Hear John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Hear this as you, as me, as all of us, as we are burdened by our own sin, as we know the guilt and the weight of sin, as we deal and struggle with sin in our own life, as we deal with the regrets of past sin, as we perhaps even ask, will God forgive me again? Will God cleanse me from my sins this time after I failed time and time again? Hear what John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is declaring to you, to me, that God has provided for us a lamb, a perfect, sufficient sacrifice. We even think back to John, the the author's words in the prologue, right, that from Jesus we have received grace upon grace. It's this similar imagery here, that sufficient sacrifice, right, this fountain filled with blood as we sing in our hymns, that the perfect, sufficient, final sacrifice has come, come to cleanse us time and time again. From our sins. And so we can know that our sins are truly, as John declares, that in this one, in this Lamb of God, our sins are taken away. As we even uh, read in Psalm 103, right, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. So again, John tells us to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after John declares this, after John pronounces that he is the superior one, and the next day he declares that he is the sufficient sacrifice for all of our sins, we have this final testimony that John the Baptist gives us in verse 32. So now as we hear John's final words of testimony in verse 32, we're actually kind of taken back in history a little bit. John, is re- John the Baptist is reflecting on something he's already seen, but he's bearing witness to it. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then this final conclusion statement, And I have seen and I have borne witness. Right? Imagine he's 
under oath, right? He's in the docket right now. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now this event here, John, the author, uh, often through his gospel, assumes, it seems, a lot of knowledge of some of the other gospel accounts. It seems like this, uh, this book, this gospel, is written later because he sort of implies or assumes that you know certain things. And in this case, he assumes that we know this very famous story that John the Baptist is referring to the scene of Jesus himself going into the Jordan River and being baptized. And we see these two events occur. First, this dove descends upon Jesus in the waters of baptism. It rests upon him, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, indicating that he now is, you know, as the one who is full of the Holy Spirit, is now going to give freely the Holy Spirit. And then this declaration, which is implied, as John the Baptist says, I testify this is the Son of God. He's referring to God Himself, God the Father at this event, declaring over His Son, this is my beloved Son, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. John is recalling this event. Yet as he recalls this event, as he says, yes, I saw this, Jesus truly is the Son of God, he says something a little bit strange again. Twice, actually, in verses 31 and in 33, he says, I myself did not know Him. Again, in 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize said, he on whom the Spirit descends, etc. This is a weird thing for John the Baptist to say. If you know the account, especially in Luke's account of the gospel, John certainly knew who Jesus was. That John was, in fact, the cousin of Jesus. That John was born just a few months before Jesus. And certainly, as they would have grown together, as their, uh, you know, their mothers would have recounted to them these, gospels, uh, these stories of the you know, chapters of, uh, of Luke, They would have known the significance of each other. They would have known what they were meant to do in this world. So certainly, again, John knew who his cousin was. He knew who Jesus was. So what does does he mean here by saying, I didn't know who he was? Well, it seems what John is pointing to here is he's really saying, I didn't recognize him. I didn't get the full picture. I didn't realize exactly who it was. I knew Jesus was important. I knew that he was going to do certain things. I knew that my job was to prepare people for him, but I didn't have the full picture. It seems he didn't have the full picture until this event, until he saw Jesus go into the waters of baptism and God declaring, this is my son. At that moment, it seems that John finally recognized truly who it was who he was going before, who it was that Jesus was meant to be, who he was supposed to proclaim Jesus as. And we see this even in the fact, you know, thinking back to what John declares about Jesus just a few verses earlier, as John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does John know this? How does John know that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Well, it seems, as John reflects on you know, this event of the baptism of Jesus, it seems that it is the moment that God the Father says, This is my Son that something clicked for John the Baptist. That in this moment he understood. All the pieces finally fit together. Perhaps as he saw the baptism of Jesus, he had in his mind this story we read, the story of Genesis 22. As God asks Abraham to sacrifice his own son, his only begotten son. He goes up and Abraham is spared this sacrifice. God himself stops him from sacrificing him and Even Abraham's own words, his almost prophetic words, that God himself will provide a lamb. Or perhaps John has the Passover in his mind. 
right? That God says that if you do not put the door, the blood on your doorpost, that I will claim, I will not spare your only begotten son. That all the firstborn sons throughout all the land of Egypt were killed that very night. As, God, as the Father announces that Jesus is truly the Son of God, this is what compels John the Baptist to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? And essentially, John is now saying, I get it now. I understand the connection here. That when the Father declares Christ to be His Son, as John sees Jesus in the waters of baptism, which points to His death on the cross, John understands that from the beginning, as John thinks about the course of Scripture, as he thinks about the Old Testament story, that it was the plan all along for God the Father to give His Son, to give His firstborn Son as a sacrifice, as that sacrifice that was promised time and time again in the Old Testament. John's not making up a new theology. He's not making up these new themes and weaving them into Scripture. He's seeing what has been woven into the pattern of Scripture, this promise that God would give His only Son as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. So as we hear this, as John makes this connection, as God Himself says, this is my Son, and John then concludes, this is the sacrifice, we again see John testifying to who Jesus truly is. And at the center of that testimony, as he puts all the pieces together, what he claims, what he declares is that Jesus is truly the Lamb of God. And that this central identity of Jesus makes sense of all the other things that he's been declaring. He's declared that the Lord is coming, that Jesus himself is the Lord, he's the Messiah, he's this chosen one who's going to come, that he's God himself, and that in his coming it will be this day of judgment. And yet we see as he declares him as the Lamb of God, this day of judgment is not that the Lord will judge the earth, but that the Lord himself, that he will submit himself to be judged, that the Son will be judged on behalf of His people, that the Lord comes not to conquer His enemies, but to die for His enemies, so that they might have life. This one that John declares that He's so high above me that I can't even take the sandals off of His feet, John sees Him as the one who will humble Himself to death, even the death on a cross. That the Son of God will lay down His life for the sins of the entire world. So brothers and sisters, as John again tells us, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let us see Christ today. Let us see the Lamb of God. Let us trust in Him. Let us see Him, as John declares, as the true and only Son of God. This one who is superior to John the Baptist, who is superior to all of us. This one who is our truly our prophet. He is our Messiah. He is our Lord. And ultimately this one who, as we hear all these things, as we see, we see him exalted as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as you behold him this morning, hear the good news that John, the author, will go on to declare in John 3.16 that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Christ who is our Lamb, Lord, which has turned your coming from one of fear and judgment to one of joy and forgiveness. God, we ask that you would help us to trust in him alone in the sufficiency of what he has accomplished through his sacrifice 
And we thank you and we praise you that you did not spare your only son, but you gave him as a ransom for the sins of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.